Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Tuesday, 25th of August. In today's podcast, I tried to get a better understanding of how various COVID-19 vaccines actually work and the potential for harm. Should we rush into it and have ourselves immunised sooner or wait and watch? What should we do if a second, better but later vaccine is developed and we have immunised many patients with the older, less effective one? What harm is caused because the sheer number of vaccinations given will make very rare complications much less rare? I will be speaking with Professor Nicholas Wood about these issues. Once again, the latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's episode of Going Viral, I will be speaking with Associate Professor Nicholas Wood. Professor Wood, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thanks very much, David. So I'm an, an academic in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney and a long-time clinician in, in vaccine safety and in vaccine research. Now, Professor Wood, we may possibly have our hands on the vaccine sometime next year. As GPs, we know very little about most of these vaccines. In fact, we know precious little. Uh, this is of huge concern, obviously, as we will be at the front line, supposedly giving our patients information about these vaccines, helping them to make an informed decision, and then actually administering the vaccines. Now, we know there are first-of-a-kind vaccines out there. Some are using Trojan horse of another virus as a Trojan horse. There are RNAs, DNAs. Uh, clamping technology. Can you tell us more about these sorts of vaccines? Sure. So um, traditionally, GPs have been giving uh, sort of four main groups, and that's the, the vaccines. It's the live attenuated vaccines, like the measles, mumps, rubella, rotavirus vaccine, and then inactivated vaccines, protein vaccines, for example, pneumococcal and tetanus, um, then virus-like particles such as the HPV vaccine. But um, as you mentioned, they're their traditional sort of um, workhorse of our vaccine program. But uh, new vaccines are emerging, and, and they're certainly in clinical trials. And these are the viral vector vaccines, examples of which is the Oxford vaccine, which is based on a chimpanzee adenovirus. And then the newer, even newer ones, which are the DNA and the RNA vaccines. And as you mentioned, the molecular clamp technology, which is built by the University of Queensland. 
and so the 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 new ones like the DNA and the um, RNA vaccines, um, as you as you know, they they're not in our current program. In fact, there's no licensed DNA or RNA vaccine available um, anywhere at the moment in, in the world. Um, and they're really based around the idea that they take the gene that encodes for the coronavirus spike protein, um, which we think is the most immunogenic part of the coronavirus. And then that genetic code is injected into the human. Um, the human recognises that genetic code and expresses the spike protein on the surfaces of the antigen-presenting cells. And then those cells um, create the antibody response as well as the T-cell immune response. Is there any risk uh, that these sorts of RNA and DNA might actually enter our own cells? Yeah, look, it, it is a theoretical risk. Um, Certainly there has been a, a MERS, so in the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus Syndrome was you know, a forerunner of a, of a coronavirus and there was a DNA vaccine trial done um, for MERS and it um, was fairly safe in the, um, in the phase one trial. There was main reactions were sort of local and some mild systemic reactions, but no serious reactions. Um, the, the, the negative was that the antibody response probably wasn't quite as good as they were hoping for. Um, so the, the disadvantages of this sort of nucleic acid vaccine is that um, the immune response may not be as good um, as we want um, and probably does require several doses. And certainly for the DNA vaccine, um, what we want to, and probably for the RNA ones as well, it, it's how that code, genetic code gets into the cells to be transfected to, to produce the protein. Um, now the RNA vaccines, like the Moderna one, are using this sort of lipid spheres, nanoparticles, to try and allow the um, mRNA to be sort of, if you like, slip into the cells um, and then be transfected and produce the protein. The DNA vaccines require, sometimes require a special administration device like an electroporator to try and increase the uptake of the, the DNA into the nucleus. Um, and I suppose there are potential safety concerns with that gene being integrated into mammalian cells, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's something that we'd really have to be watching, watching out for. And that is, in fact, a big concern, isn't it? it uh, is that the last thing you want is to incorporate a viral gene into our own chromosomes? That, that's right. And I, the risk, I suppose, then, is that if you, if you do sort of um, have a you know, high level of... Um, immunity generated by this vaccine, but then when you see the wild virus um, later in life, a few months after you've been vaccinated, there's a risk you can get what's known as an antibody-mediated disease enhancement and actually get a more, more severe disease. So they'll be watching out for that. It, it, it wasn't seen in the mRNA vaccines with the Moderna one, which has mm -hmm. now just gone into phase three trials. Um, in the US with about 30,000 participants in it. So the goal of that phase three trial will be predominantly to look at efficacy, but also to look at safety in a larger number of people. Going back to the uh, chimpanzee adenovirus, of course, uh, you know, when you hear of the fact that the uh, cough, SARS-CoV-2 came from a bat, and now we are using a chimpanzee adenovirus to actually infect us and then deliver uh, a portion of the SARS-CoV-2 to our bodies, you can imagine that some of us would feel a little bit anxious about it. 
Yeah, yeah. No, and as I said, it's certainly a new technology, and it's not something that we've really been um, exposed to so far in our, in our vaccine um, workhorse. So, so that the the chimpanzee adenovirus that they're using is a in the actual chimp itself just causes a very sort of mild upper respiratory tract infection. Um, so what they do is they take that adenovirus and, and cut out um, the, the virulent genes and insert the um, gene that encodes for the um, spike protein, the coronavirus spike protein, um, and then inject it. So in the Oxford Phase 1 trial, mm -hmm. um, they had done just over a 1,000 participants. And, and the main sort of side effects there were some pain and, and feverish and chills, um, but no serious adverse events. Um, and they saw a fairly um, robust um, antibody response. Of course, the, the thing that we don't really know about the antibody response is mm -hmm. how much antibody you really need. Um, and so... Unlike hepatitis B, we sort of have a reasonable correlative protection, so we sort of know how much antibody you actually need to generate after a vaccine so that when you do see the wild virus, you actually get infected. But we haven't got such a correlate for coronavirus, for the SARS coronavirus. And so um, although this tr all the trials will produce an antibody response level, actually understanding what that means in clinical in life, is that enough? Um, we don't really have that answer. Um, mm -hmm. They're trying to do something quite clever. They're looking at comparing the antibody responses that we get after a vaccine to antibody levels seen in those that have had wild infection. And so they can see, because um, we, you know, they, you've had a wild infection, um, you've been hospitalised, we can take your antibody level of a month or three months or six months later and we can try and see what you generate from the wild disease and whether the um, vaccine can match that. There may be a problem with that, Nick, in that um, I think I just read in yesterday's Medscape uh, the fact that the antibody titers tend to fall in some patients reasonably quickly, they, they, they actually think that it's not useful to use serology testing back to patients after April to see whether or not they had had COVID-19. So is that going to complicate how we assess efficacy of the immune response? Absolutely. So I think that's one of the troubles with measuring antibodies again, that it might fall quite quickly in some but not in others. So. So establishing an immune correlate is certainly a goal, but um, there, as you're pointing out, there are some difficulties in that. And, and we'll probably have to rely on the phase three trials, which will give us some hint about how much antibody you generate and whether you get protection or not. But um, it'll be more down to the, the clinical efficacy. And of course, one of the issues then is if antibodies do fall quite quickly, does that mean we need booster doses? And mm -hmm. how often do we give a booster dose as well? And I've heard people mention things like T-cell, B-cell memory. How does that work? Yeah, I think, again, we're learning out, uh, learning more about those um, particular parts of the immune system and what role they play. I think uh, the general belief that the T-cell immune system is important in, in the cytokines that it produces to protect you from the virus. Um, again, how much you need and what type of cytokine response is not clear just yet. Mm -hmm. um, it will be looked at in, in the trial environment, um, as well as being looked at in the, in the, you know, the wild, those that have got wild infection. 
um, to try and see if we can extrapolate. But um, it, it's a hard, it's a harder part of the immune system to, to test for or to look mm -hmm. for. The samples that we we collect require sort of special preparation and specialised testing in, in specialised labs. So you're basically saying that it is possible that in time to come, uh, monitoring our immune response and when we might need boosters or when our levels drop may not be so simple. I think that's right. I think it'll, as you know, there are many many different vaccines in trial at the moment. In fact. WHO has a very good landscape page where they de they detail all the trials and I think as of mid-August there were over 160 candidate vaccines under development and about 27 of those were in clinical trial um, and so you know we probably will um, with so many different vaccines and so much attention focused on prevention there'll be down the track I expect the use of combinations of vaccines. So you might be um, you know, better to have a DNA prime and then boosted with a viral vector or you might be the other way around, better to be primed with a viral vector vaccine and then boosted some other way. So those sorts of strategies will be being looked at but right now I think they're just looking at the single vaccine to see how it performs before they consider the combination strategies. Nick, I had also heard that it's possible that because there are various strains dominant in different continents in the world, that it may be possible that you get vaccinated against a particular strain in one continent, uh, but that it may not give you coverage through the world. Could that be right? There's certainly a potential possibility. I mean, I, I haven't heard um, anything to suggest that um, it's, you know, it's a mutant, mutant strain and therefore we really are um, evolving into a brand new SARS-CoV-2 but um, a bit like, it's a little bit like influenza I suppose you know, the, the virus changes from year to year which means our vaccine changes from year to year I'm not sure whether the SARS-CoV-2 mutates as quickly or as efficiently as influenza and whether we then need to adapt our, our vaccine programs and so mm -hmm. rapidly like we do with flu now, I know that we have a very robust uh, team GA that looks long and hard at all sorts of evidence. I guess, Nick, my concern is that every bit of evidence that you as a specialist and involved in, in, in immunization and the team GA experts, everything that they will see are very rushed through phase three trials. Do you see any problems in the sense that they may be things that might be missed. Yeah, look, I think the main thing will be missing the rarer side effect that is not detectable in a largish phase three trial. So traditionally the phase three trials, or the most more recent phase three trials, have involved tens of thousands. So okay. for example, the Moderna one is is a thirty thousand person trial. <laughs> um, the Oxford one is um, you know tens of thousands. Um, so if an adverse event is is fairly common, you know one in five thousand, one in ten thousand, we're probably likely to pick it up. But an adverse event that is less common than that, which is still quite severe but but rare, and we may not predict or be able to pick up in a um, in the vaccine, the phase three vaccine trial, and, and may only become you know, more visible or, or seen when it's used in the community in, in hundreds of thousands. And then a the good example of that is the rotavirus vaccine. So 
it, the first generation rotavirus vaccine, which was called RotaShield, uh, went through the trials, went out into market in the US and started to be used and, and then the surveillance systems were able to pick up a, a, a potential safety signal which was the intersusception to the bowel blockage that infants can get. Um, it was studied further with a range of different trial, uh, sorry, studies like case cohort and control, case control and cohort studies and they found yes there was an increased risk of intersusception compared to placebo mm -hmm. with these particular um, vaccines. So it was withdrawn from the market. Um, and then the next generation of vaccines had to go through quite large um, phase three trials, you know, 30,000 each, and they did not detect an increased risk, a significantly increased risk of intersusception. Um, and they went into the marketplace with a package insert saying that there may be this um, risk of intersusception. Now, as we know, when it's being used in hundreds of thousands, we in Australia and the US have picked up a um, slightly but rare increased risk of intersusception after the rotavirus vaccines and the government has a intersusception fact sheet for providers and patients just warning about this small, uh, very small risk. Um, so that's a good example of it yeah. not being picked up in a phase three trial but only being made irrelevant or we, made aware, we were made aware of it when it got into the, the, the marketplace. How long did it take for the second lots of vaccine, the second generation rotavirus, uh, before you started seeing a signal that they too may have a problem? Well, we were sort of looking for it. So um, okay. we were primed because of the first experience, and so we started to look for it within, you know, when the mark when it went out into the the license and started to be used. So I think fairly quickly, within within a year or two, we were able to give a fairly accurate estimate of the risk of intersusception after that rotavirus vaccine and, and then people were made aware of it. Now it's, it is a, a risk that as a society you know we, we're happy to, um, to accept because of the benefits of the vaccine in yeah. preventing rotavirus disease. So I suspect that with these very new COVID-19 vaccines those very rare adverse reactions will take about a year or more before you start seeing, oh yes, it's not just coincidence, it actually is possibly causal. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think it'll once it's being used in a larger number, and of course, whether where this vaccine gets targeted initially as to which groups in the community then will be, you know, it might be not likely to be children, and then it will be adults, and it might be healthy adults, frontline yeah. workers, etc. And so we might only, we may not see it in that, but we might only see it in those that have sort of other medical conditions. Let's just say that we get our hands on an effective and safe vaccine, however you want to define that, and we may want to define that in a little while. What are the ethical issues behind delivering a very, very new form of vaccine to a very large population? I think the main thing will be having a good knowledge of its safety and effectiveness. Now, um, for vaccines that we've been using for many, many years, that safety and effectiveness data um, was certainly known within within a few years. Um, but um, when for this particular one, we won't have a couple of years to see how it performs. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one issue I think that you know when the community will have to be confronted with. Here's a vaccine. It's gone through this large phase three trial. This is what okay. we know from its safety in this group of people. Yep. And this is what we know of its effectiveness. And then 
it'll be up to us as a community to say, well, yes, I'm willing to take that and I'll, and I'll have, the, have this vaccine. Because the other issue, of course, is that once you've started to immunise our population, say, a large, reasonably large uptake, and then a year down the track, uh, a second vaccine hits the market that's actually even better and safer, uh, what happens then? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and I don't know whether we have the answer. I know people are thinking about the answer, but, but if, for example, the first-generation vaccine through the Phase three trial shows 50 to 60% effective and decisions made to put that to the market, um, and then, as you say, a year later, the second generation comes out and it's 85% effective. For those folks that have never had the first dose, that's a simple answer. Yes, go and get the second generation vaccine. Yep. But for people in our community that have already had vaccine A, um, we will probably fairly rapidly need to do a trial to see how does vaccine B mm-hmm. compare when or work from the safety and immune response when you've already had vaccine A. And so um, these are questions yet to be answered, I think, but, but they're, they're live questions. The likelihood, Nick, is that most of these vaccines, if not all, will require regular boosters. Is that right? Well, they definitely will require several initial doses. That's right. So, so we, like, as you know, with the infant schedule, we have six-week, four-month, six-month dose, and they're all effectively priming, priming, certainly the first two are priming doses. Um, and so these vaccines will probably require a couple of priming doses. Now, whether or not they need annual boosters or whether they need a booster with a different form of vaccine um, is yet to be determined, but it will have to be looked at. This, of course, brings up the issue that um, it was not that long ago that our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, had basically said that if he could, he'd make it mandatory. Um, But he seems to have walked back a little bit from it. What do you feel about that statement? I personally don't like mandates um, and don't like mandatory vaccination. Um, I think that it's probably the thing that we don't go to first. Mm -hmm. I think Australians have done pretty well with you know, voluntary acceptance of vaccines. So mm-hmm. our children's schedule, we're able to achieve coverage, you know, 90 to 95% without the need for mandates. Um, we had a good communication package on the safety and effectiveness, and so parents were willing to get their children vaccinated, and we got 90 to 95% coverage. Now, um, that could be more than enough that we need at a community level to give us, you know, third protection. Mm-hmm. We don't quite know how much herd protection we need. Is it 40%, 60%, 80% or higher? Um, and so I think rushing straight to the mandatory route is, is not the best initially. Um, mm-hmm. But we, if we've got um, a, a nice, healthy supply of vaccine, we've got easy access to it, um, you know, you can pretty much not travel too far around Sydney at least and get yourself to a testing clinic for COVID, um, you know, test. And so if we can have fairly um, easy and rapid or sorry, sorry, easy logistics supply of the vaccines and it's free um, and good communication, then I think we should start with that sort of principles initially. Makes sense. Uh, for me, it's like putting all your vaccination eggs in one new basket and then, as I said, get, get a surprise a year down the track when... Uh, something else better turns up. 
it's one of those things again that as a society we have to say well if the vaccine is 50 to 60 percent effective that could be pretty good particularly mm-hmm. for um, you know those that are over an older age and a bit more mm-hmm. likely to get nasty disease they mm-hmm. might be willing to say well in that particular group that's not too bad it's better than no protection um, and 60 percent could be quite good so we will have to be we'll have to think about all this when when we get more detail about um, how effective they are in in the in the in the, in the wild so to speak in the community. Mm-hmm. Now, in light of this, tell us more about the vaccination injury compensation scheme you wrote about in your opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald. Yeah, so uh, myself and, and um, other academics around the country have been sort of agitating for a no-fault vaccine injury compensation scheme for a few years, few years now. And uh, essentially what it does is it, it sort of says to those in our community, if you took the vaccine, which was to benefit yourself, but also for a broader community um, protection, then you should be compensated if you had a rare side effect. Um, now I'll give you an example. The interception after the rotavirus vaccine is a rare side effect, mm-hmm. and sometimes the infants, um, if you have true interception, you certainly need to go to hospital. You might require a liquid or air enema, and rarely you might need surgery to actually reduce the interception. Um, in our current society, the, that family is, is not compensated for this rare side effect. Right. Um, whereas if they had been born in the US, there is a vaccine injury compensation program underway and that particular side effect would qualify as uh, one that could be compensatable. There are rules around the timing of it to show that it was you know, um, associated with the vaccine, mm-hmm. but it, it's, a, it's a nice sort of... Um, thing I think it's feel as a community to, to do for those that um, are taking a, a vaccine not only benefit themselves but also the broader um, community. Another example is the Guillain-Barre syndrome which is a very rare side effect after the influenza vaccine mm-hmm. um, and if, if people in the US had this rare side effect they would be able to receive compensation. Guillain-Barre can be quite nasty, often end up needing hospitalisation with intravenous medicines such as intravenous immunoglobulin and, and rarely um, admission to intensive care and, and the need for a ventilator. So so they they would be covered for that un, under an injury compensation scheme. So I think that our current, even in the absence of a COVID pandemic, we should be having a no-fault injury compensation scheme there are 25 countries around the world that have such a program in place. New Zealand has one, which is um, called the Accident Compensation um, Scheme. And um, there's also one in the UK, there's one in Quebec, um, there's one in, in, as I say, 25 countries around the world. So um, I feel we need one. Now, COVID has just sort of elevated that up mm-hmm. in, in my mind to become more, um, more of a reason to have such a scheme. Especially because all the vaccines are so, you know, uh, one of a kind and so unique. Uh, I, I really hear you. I think it's a really important initiative. I think the other thing is it probably helps the GP to some degree knowing that if this person does get this rare side effect, I mean, I know as a clinician you sometimes feel, oh gosh, was I to blame for that? But mm-hmm. um, I think as a GP you also think, well, this is, 
it's it's sort of it's a nice thing for us as a society to do and, and morally and ethically correct to 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 be able to compensate those that are it is a rare conditions but yeah. um I think it's a nice thing for the GP to have in the back of their head that if this rare side effect that they know about and have read about and is in the immunisation handbook happens that yeah. this patient will be looked after. Could you just clarify for us that concept of reciprocal justice? Yeah, that's the idea of um, a person putting themselves out for the benefit of a community, essentially being um, looked after. So, so it's the idea of yep. you having your MMR, your measles and mumps rubella vaccine. Um, if you get, you have that not only to protect yourself from those three viruses, particularly measles, but also to keep our community coverage up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and measles is we need, really need a coverage around about the 85% to stop community transmission um, and there is a goal to eliminate measles around the world so if if we can say to people look you're doing something for yourself but also for the country and you do get injured then you'll be looked after. And finally there is a perception that in Australia as compared to most countries in the world our risks from COVID-19 is substantially lower so the question is is there some wisdom in waiting and seeing and watching what is happening overseas with as these new vaccines are being used before we rush into it? Um, yes and no. So, you know, I think it, there is probably um, worth waiting until we have some fairly large-scale phase three results in safety and effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main reason for that is so that we can communicate to the person that's going to get the vaccine, look, this is what we know about this vaccine, and, and so mm-hmm. that they then are able to make an informed consent whether they want to have it or not. But at the same time, the longer we wait, there are people that, um, are, you know, if the vaccine is 50% effective, um, that um, that's better than no percent effective, <laughs> nothing available, particularly as we don't have a reliable therapy out there yet either. I mean, we know that steroids might be um, useful for those in intensive care, but there is no sort of magic treatment yet, um, and they're being worked on in parallel. So, um, if if a magic therapy were to emerge, it might be reason to say, well, gee, we've got this treatment now. We can probably hold off until we get the 85% effective vaccine. Right. Um, but in the absence of a of a, of a magic therapy. Um, then people are still dying um, and you might say, well, I'm, I'm happy to tolerate a, a less efficacious vaccine to to enable me to have some protection and potentially community life to return to some more normal, normal way. Professor Wood, do you have any final messages you'd like to leave with our GP listeners and other healthcare professionals? Look, I think, yeah, I think the main thing is we probably really need to work more on getting our messages in a good, practical, digestible way for our frontline worker GP colleagues to be able to um, present to the patients. And this is what we know about the disease. This is what we know about the treatment. And this is what we know about how the vaccines work and their safety and effectiveness. And so that sort of messaging and communication, I think we still have a lot of work to do to really um, make it in a friendly and user-friendly way that the GPs can present to their, to their families. Because as, as we know from our previous or current program, GPs really are the most trusted source of information for their patients in terms of vaccines. And 
we'll be the ones at the front line delivering it. So um, I think we we can do some more in that space, and I think also it's right it's round about the right time for us to to seriously consider an injury compens vaccine injury compensation scheme. And there are different models around the world on how we might fund that and, and set it up in terms of its structure. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think those two things we, we we really should be moving on now. So that we're well prepared when um, the vaccines come down the, um, out, out the pipeline at the other end. Makes a lot of sense to me, Professor Wood. I thank you for giving up your precious time uh, to discuss these important issues uh, with us. Uh, it's been very interesting and informative, uh, Nick. Great. Thanks very much for chatting, David. Yes. Keep safe and thank you once again. Goodbye. Bye bye. And now for the global and local COVID-19 statistics. From the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases has exceeded 23.3 million. The USA has nearly 5.7 million cases. Brazil recorded more than 3.6 million. India has exceeded 3.1 million cases. Russia nearly 960,000. South Africa more than 611,000. And Peru with more than 594,000 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths is 810,249, with the USA recording more than 177,000 deaths, Brazil nearly 115,000, Mexico nearly 60,500, India with more than 57,500, and the UK with more than 41,500 deaths. Australia has 24,876 cases of COVID-19 and 525 deaths. Victoria has reported 148 new cases of COVID-19 in the past day and eight deaths. There are currently 598 patients in hospital, 17 are being ventilated and 14 are in ICU. It may suggest to us that the low daily death rate may be expected from now and that the trend of new cases is still going in the right direction but seems to be plateauing. Will Victoria be able to get case numbers below 100 remains to be seen. New South Wales has reported three new cases, two with known contacts and the third is a return traveller in hotel quarantine. These results are highly encouraging, but we must keep up the high rates of testing and have our patients adhere to safety measures and restrictions. Queensland has had no new cases of COVID-19 in the past day. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for tonight's webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on 
self-claim.